0: This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're joined by Mike Kosper, producer and host of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. As we ask him, why does the story of Mars Hill Church matter to all churches today? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Over at the Gospel Coalition, Sam Alberry, uh, he he talked a little bit, uh, a, a part of his talk, I just want to play like 40, 45 seconds of it. He's talking to pastors and, and about what does it look like to be honest, mm-hmm. to be honest with your congregation, and does your honesty what, what are the results of your honesty? I think this is a pretty complex question. So let's go ahead and listen to that, and then we'll discuss.
1: The danger is if as pastors we put on a facade that actually we've got everything sorted out in the Christian life, then we make it harder for other people to confess their sins. We, we create churches in which everyone feels as though they've got to have their lives together, where people don't want to come with their failures. People don't want to come with their weaknesses. But by being honest, that pastor was creating a culture where actually it was safe to confess sins. It was safe to talk about what was actually going on in life. It's very hard to trust someone if you don't think they're being real with you. And so we pastors need to be honest.
0: All right, Aubrey, here's basically for people who couldn't understand through his wonderful accent. uh, By
1: the way, I I feel like you said his name very Chicagoan, like Sam Alberry, but he's British, so it's got to be like Sam Albury, there you right? Go. Don't you think?
0: I I've lived out here a long time. I still fight the that I have a Chicago accent instead of a
1: Jersey I think accent. I
0: never really had a strong <laughs> Jersey one, but I'd like to think <laughs> like it's like what a you know like I still have my East yeah, Coast. But yeah, yeah. a valid point? Give, yeah. it, give it to us again. I want we want everyone to hear your English accent, Sam Dick. Albury. i almost said like Aubrey. Aubrey, what is what is your best accent that you can do?
1: Oh, I'm kind of terrible at accents, but. But uh good eye, Mike.
0: Yeah, you are terrible.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> My wife, uh Carrie, she she whenever she does an accent, yeah. it always sounds the same. And then I'll be like, is she could be doing southern. It, it just becomes all
2: one thing. It yeah. becomes
0: one. i am like, oh, yeah. are you like trying to do this? She's like, oh no. <laughs> the same. So uh but well done. I think Sam would Thank be happy you, with what you did for You're him. You're welcome, there. Sam. Uh, but the uh the crux of what he's saying is as pastors. When we are open, when we confess sin, yeah. when we discuss struggle, yeah. it then sets a, uh, a a DNA an ethos within our churches that mm-hmm. they feel like they can not only people can not only confess to us, mm-hmm. they can relate to us, but they can confess more easily to one another, yeah. or corporately, or whatever else it might be. That that as is often the case in churches, the pastor is kind of setting the. Um, uh, setting the direction here. And if you're fake and you're trying to give this perception of being perfect, then your people are going to feel like they have to be perfect. Yeah. But that if you are open and and speak to your own faults, then it will kind of set that within the ethos of your church. Yeah. Just wondering, uh, uh, there's some questions that arise from that, but just big picture, do you tend to agree with what you I tend saying? to
1: agree with that. I mean, I typically like pastors, authors, et cetera, who are willing to be vulnerable. Um, the, I think the there is a line in my mind because I don't necessarily want to hear all of my pastor's dirty laundry. Mm. There are times when this is probably not fair, but there are times that I want my pastor to be such a strong woman and man of faith That I'm like borrowing their faith a little bit. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, yes, thank you. Okay. If you can believe like that, I could believe like that. I don't know if that's fair or unfair, but sometimes I do want my pastors to like be a little stronger
0: than I am, if that makes sense. So, how now that you're the pastor or you're a pastor, if you're, if somebody in your church came to you and said, Hey, I I need to borrow your faith at times, (laughs) man, your, your strength really compels me, your strength really spurs me on. Yeah. Uh, would you be like, hey, I'm not strong? Or would you just kind of be like, okay, well, they need that from me. How would you respond to that? Well, so the funny
1: thing is, is the most reaction I get from people, and I'm sure you're the same, Brian, is when I share my struggles. Is that afterwards, that's when people go, thank you for being vulnerable. I needed to hear that today. No one's ever like, thank you for being so faithful, Aubrey. That was (laughs) amazing. You know, so I, I do think there's something there that we connect with vulnerability. But Brian, do you find it hard as a pastor to open up like that for your people?
0: I feel like, um, sometimes I can be too open, not about specifics, but just sometimes I. I think that one of my drawbacks as a pastor, or maybe it's not a drawback. I think it's a double-edged sword. I think this is one of my greatest strengths and one of my greatest weaknesses. Like, that sounded yeah. very, like, superhero-y, right? Like, uh, <laughs> Just
1: own it, Brian. You're a
0: superhero. I think one of my things is that I want to be – I want to level the playing field with people. Totally. I don't like when people call me pastor Yeah. or, like, speak of me, to me, or about me in a more – reverential Uh way because i don't feel that yeah you know like i i feel like i want to be your buddy like i want to talk but i what i've come to realize over the years is there are a lot of people who don't want that from their pastor right they want you to be separate and that could be lonely like we're getting into all sorts of stuff here the pastors so just this past sunday i was up in the pulpit and i said i need you all to know i struggle with people pleasing Mm. and i talked about it because it played into it And then you've got that voice in the back of your mind going, is that okay? Is that okay that I just said that? Yeah. good Because I think you and I would both agree this could go too far certainly it could go too far and often goes too far well paint a picture of what uh maybe not in specifics but what would be too far where's where's the danger in this
3: yeah i
1: this is a really good question and i do think it depends on the denomination because there are some denominations where like they always will call their pastor bishop or reverend and show them honor and respect because that's that that's the dynamic there and that's really important um so, But in our church, what's too far? I guess what would be too far is if I was like, you guys, I'm really struggling in my marriage. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be married to my husband today. That feels like it's too far because I'm saying something that's deeply personal is really between me and my husband or maybe between me and my husband that's and a right. therapist. or And like the whole church doesn't need to know that because you still as a leader, not that you're perfect, not that you're fake. But you still do want to keep some things for yourself and have
0: personal boundaries. Mm-hmm, I, but mm-hmm. I don't know.
1: I guess it's hard to define what that line is, except when it's too oversharing, too personal. Yeah,
0: I think also, you know, there you, people might just think, pastors, that, like the arrogant move is to pretend I'm perfect. Right. That, there's an equal arrogance of going, I'm so broken. Look to me. Totally. Look to me for the, my, you know, yeah, how I am. Like, yeah. There's an equal amount there. Yeah. I think... Where this becomes dangerous is, um... So, the... (sighs) it is both sides because it's not good when you're so detached that people can't access mm-hmm. you. They can't connect with you right. and, and you try to hold up this persona as perfect. Right. It's also bad when you use the pulpit as like your counseling couch. I agree. And just going, Oh, I'm struggling with this. And there becomes a point where it's unfair
1: and unhealthy. Yeah. yeah.
0: But I would say pastors need people in their lives they that they do that. Do. To. And what often happens is that is not the case. And so you know, I try to have people outside my church yeah. where I do that for, but yeah. it is, I guess why I would end it this way. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a tough line to walk. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's oversharing? What's this? I do know that I don't think as pastors, we're meant to be separate from our people in the sense of like, I can't understand you. You're so different from me. I don't think that's the case. Uh, Wanted to start there Well coming up next Aubrey An interview you and I Have been real excited For a while here to do Mike Cosper He's the director of podcasting For Christianity Today And the host Of the wildly popular New podcast The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Mike Cosper is going to join us Next here on The Common Good AM 1160 Hope for your life friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined. If you've been around this show over the last couple of weeks, you know uh, Aubrey and I have talked a lot about the new podcast out from Christianity Today called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that we're both just fascinated by this podcast. And so we're thrilled to be joined Uh, by the director of podcasting for Christianity Today, also the producer and the voice of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. That's Mike Cosper. Mike, how are you
4: today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into this podcast, uh, let me ask you to go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience just so they can get to know you a little bit.
4: Yeah. So uh, I I served as a pastor for about 15 years, helped plan a church uh, we launched in the year 2000, came on staff about a year afterwards. Um, I was primarily over sort of worship and arts, but, mm. you know, in church planting, you, you know, one of the old sayings is like, you got to cook till the cook shows up. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so, so I wore a lot of hats over the years and, you know, did everything from running community groups to leading capital campaigns. I mean, it's, it's a wild, it's a wild journey. Um but yeah, I uh, did that for quite a few years and stepped away from uh, local church ministry in 2015. Um, spent a spent a few years working in in the media space, helping nonprofits kind of tell their stories. And then uh, about a year year and a half ago, joined the staff at Christianity Today to to help sort of expand and and deepen their investment in podcasting.
1: Mike, uh, Brian, and I are both. Uh, church planter so we hear you when you say you cook until the cooks come. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes that is accurate. accurate um so mike obviously we want to talk to you about the rise and fall of mars hill the podcast itself but i'm curious what got you even interested in uh you know finding out more about mars hill what got you interested in doing this as a podcast
4: yeah. So our church, you know, we didn't plant with, so, so Axe 29 is the church planting network that Mars Hill was, uh, sort of part of launching. And, um, we, we didn't launch with, with Acts 29, but we joined up with them in about 2003. And so just through our work with, with Acts 29, I did a lot of like training with worship and, and working with worship leaders. And so one thing led to another in that season. And I got to know quite a few of the guys at Mars Hill, mm. um, and you know, for me, I mean, Mark was a a massive influence in yeah. in, in my life. He he kind of came to the fore just as I was, you know, uh, hitting my early twenties and figuring out what does it mean to be a husband and a pastor and all of this. And so, it was just this very formative experience. And um, you know, as things as things went south there, um, we experienced some similar things in our ministry uh, at our church, which led to me feeling like it was time to to sort of move on. And then eventually uh, uh you know the lead pastor at our church had to had to resign under similar mm. kind of circumstances and mm. so um you know and then in the years that followed i mean we could sit here and run through the litany of names um yeah. that that have sort of similar uh, story arcs and consequences and so it it just kept coming up and you know we kept kind of asking okay like you can, you can point to any one of these stories and say, well, this is why that guy, you know, had to step away or was yeah. fired. Um, but then you start to sort of look at, well, what's the pattern? Like, what's the phenomenon that kind of ties all of these together? And that, as much as anything else, is what, what got me curious. And um, I think Mars Hill is a particularly interesting story because of just how dramatic the whole thing was, yeah. including yeah. the fact that the church closed its doors.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's so fascinating that how quickly, again, this feels a little inside baseball. So I want to expand it for people who may not know the Mars Hill story. And obviously, we want them to go listen to the podcast. But why is Mars Hill the one that you chose? Why is it such a fascinating story, as you just said?
4: Yeah, so Mark was really, you know, he pioneered all kinds of, you know, innovations in the church that now we we think of as normal. He um, he planted the church in 1996. He planted you know, very much in a subculture in Seattle, um, trying to reach sort of young creatives, young, you know, up and coming creatives in the city. And, um, you know, he's one of the first guys that had you know, whose church had a website, one of the first people whose, you know, MP3s were available for, to download. And so even while big churches were kind of getting up to speed on that stuff, he had, you know, he had a lot of this, he had a lot of content out there and available, um, and then, you know, kind of personal style, he sort of, you know, you can look at what happened in the nineties with the secret churches and see how things got much, much more casual. Um, Mark kind of, again, sort of took that to a, another level, uh, uh, attaching to, again, the, a subculture. And, um, and so, you know, the one, one of the ways I say it on the podcast is like these days, it's not uncommon to see sort of the young cool pastor with kind of a personal brand and look and all of that. Uh, yeah, Mark in many ways was was one of the pioneers of that. Yeah, hmm. um, and then the church itself. I mean the the arc of the arc of the church's story is that you know they start with a dozen or so people, and um, you know at its peak it had somewhere the, the numbers are always fuzzy. I mean churches are that way, right? But somewhere <laughs> between thirteen thousand and fifteen thousand people were gathering on Sundays wow. at this church wow. at its peak. Um, and then you know, like I said, they. Mark resigned um, after he was sort of being investigated by his elders, and he resigned in mid October 2014. And uh, January 1st, 2015, the the church no longer existed. So, wow. you know, it's just this very outsized example, and Mark himself is just a fascinating, you know, character. He's an incredible communicator and mm-hmm. just so compelling to listen to. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, it's it's a mix of extraordinary drama and characters. And, um, and I think it hopefully becomes kind of an invitation to pay attention to these deeper questions and issues.
1: Mike, um, this is maybe a personal question for you. I know you're the author of a book called Recapturing the Wonder Transcendent Faith in a Disenchanted World. I can imagine that doing this kind of podcast could tempt you towards disenchantment. (laughs) <laughs> and uh some emotions right some bitterness and frustration some just disappointment in life how like how's your I, i'm not asking the question how's your heart i guess i'm asking like how are you staying the course mm-hmm. and not giving in to disenchantment as you're uncovering all of this stuff that's so heavy
4: mm-hmm. that's a great question i mean you know like i said before you know we we kind of, you know, my, my church and my family, like we kind of experienced this on a local level for us too. Yeah. And one of the things we found is that in, in being able to tell our story, um, whether it was with friends or with, you know, counselors or, you know, other sort of leaders or whatever, um, the, the process of telling that story was a very healing thing for us. Um, so in some ways, you know, doing this is, is kind of entering into that process again, um, but yeah, I mean, I won't I won't say that like this is not an overwhelming experience too. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, your hope in the midst of this is that for the church's sake, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant and that mm. um you know, I think the the church should always be about examination and repentance and yeah. bringing these things to light so that we can have honest conversations about them if we want to be a better and more beautiful church.
0: That's a great point. Mike Cosper is director of podcasting for Christianity today. He's the host of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. What do you think it says about the church in general, evangelicalism as a whole that Mark Driscoll, uh, imploded at Mars Hill and now has another big church in Arizona without a real restoration process and just seems to have picked up. What does that tell you? Not so much about Mark, but about the church, uh, Big C Church in general?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple ways to look at it. One is we love redemption stories, right? Yeah. Like as a public, yeah. we love redemption stories. And so I think, again, one of Mark's skills is is kind of communication and um, you know there's there's an interesting dynamic with the Mars Hill story in that as as things came to an end at the church a lot of people who were internal to the church a lot of people who drove the kind of process that led to him being held accountable didn't do a lot of press they didn't they didn't tell a lot of their stories hmm. and so what you had is people who were kind of driving the criticism of Mark long before he resigned were the people sort of during and, and then in the aftermath who continued to kind of provide coverage and that sort of thing. And so, you know, I, w- I wouldn't say there was a vacuum of people who were saying, hey, this this didn't end well and there hasn't been accountability here. Um, but, you know, as, as people have said on the podcast and, and you'll hear more about it as the show goes on, I mean, I think for a number of folks that were close to it at Mars Hill, there's a bit of regret that they didn't communicate more and they didn't mm anymore. And so because of that, I think if you're, if you're not familiar with the story, if you didn't follow it closely, if you didn't read the blogs and the social media and all that, and I think, you know, a lot of sort of real people aren't on Twitter, right? Right. Um, uh, You know, it's what they, what they see and what they hear is a story from Mark about, you know, his, his version of the story is, you know, there's, there was a long, a long leadership conflict that went on for quite a few years. And, you know at the end of it he decided it was time to resign and step away um so you know with all that said i i think um i think that's i think that's why it was easy for people to step in and uh say well you know we we want to see this guy restored and and man you show up and listen to a sermon and you know he's a like i said he's just a very compelling guy and he's he's you know for the most part from what i've seen you know Um, His message has shifted in in some ways, but he really does sort of drive people to Jesus in his preaching. And it's one of the complicated things about the story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That is certainly one of the complicated things about the story. Has anything surprised you just in your research or in your interviews?
4: Yeah, I I would say the first thing that surprised me when I I really got into the story, um, and again, this is in the first episode, but was hearing from, from the folks that were in the room where it happened um, that they didn't want Mark to resign. They, they wanted mm. to see a restoration process. And the degree to that was like <clears> – <throat> the degree to which that was a universal feeling from inside the church was very, very surprising to me. Because, mm. um, you know, I had the feeling from looking at it from the outside that there was just an army of people who were out for blood. And, yeah. and there were, I mean, there, there certainly were people who, who wanted, you know, wanted him out, but, um, I think that was a, I think that was probably the biggest thing that surprised me early on. And then there, there's a few other details that, you know, I'll, I'll say, stay tuned.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's funny. Mike, I wonder, and we asked you this off air, but I wonder, have you had any contact with actually with Mark Driscoll and uh, any feedback from him? Or is that probably way too big of an ask right now thinking he might come on?
4: You know, we've reached, we've reached out a number of times. um, And, you know, I'll continue to reach out as the series goes along, but, you know, there's been, at this point, he's, he's not responded to our requests and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I'd, I'd love to talk to him. Um, I've, yeah. I've met Mark a number of times over the years and um, in my personal interactions with him, he's always been very kind to me. He was very kind about my ministry when, when we talked about that at one point, And he was very kind to my family when he met my, my wife and my oldest daughter at one point. And so, you know, interpersonally, I I've only had great experiences with him. So I I would love to sit and talk with him. I'd mm-hmm. love to hear, I'd love to give him a chance to 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 tell his version of the story but to tell it while answering some hard questions which yeah. I'm not sure he's ever put himself in a position to do.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Um Mike, we obviously love the podcast and everything I've seen online everyone loves it and is just like waiting for the next episode to drop but are you getting any pushback from like naysayers at all?
4: A little bit. You know, I think there are um there's a general response, I think, and this is true across kind of all of CT's ministry at times. Is, you know, when, when we tell stories about bad things that have happened inside Christendom, um, you know, there are Christians that show up and say, well, you're making the church look bad. Like, why would you mm-hmm. Why would you do that? Um, and so there, there's been some of that attitude. I think there's been some attitude, uh, again, of people who've sort of heard Mark describe the story who are then saying, well, you know, he – he learned his lesson and moved on. Like, why are you, you know? Like the best, the best one was, um, you know, somebody who said, you know, what, what, what if somebody decided to make a podcast about the worst things you ever did? Um, <laughs> you know, my and my response was, well, I mean, if they felt inclined to do that, I'd, I'd want to listen and figure out who have I hurt and how can I make yeah. things right. Yeah. Um. So, but, but overwhelmingly, I, the response has been positive, and I would say. The response has been um, from across the board, Christian leaders and Christian church members and a number of pastors, um, people saying, like, I I identify with the story. I experience this or, um, man, we need to examine this. We need to ask these questions. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, so.
0: yeah. And Mike, as we kind of close this up. Uh, You know, my guess is you guys are doing this also because you want us to learn and you want the church to be better. So Aubrey and I are both pastors. What do you hope one or two takeaways are when this thing whole thing's all said and done? What are one or two takeaways for pastors, for church leaders, just for church attenders after they listen to this podcast?
4: I think, um, you know, I think one of the big questions um, in my mind is what are we looking for when we go to church? Uh, Um, mm, and I think it's an unexamined question for most Christians. What, what we have in our culture is an attitude and a posture towards the church that, um, that's generally drawn towards the personality of the preacher. Um, some people will, will attach, you know, along with that, like, well, I, I want biblical exposition or I want, you know, I want this kind of programming for my kids or whatever. Um, but I think we've become really, really attached to uh sort of a a personality driven thing in the sense that like you know i I keep comparing it to you know for samuel first kings like we we want a mediator you know we want somebody to tell us who god is and and how we're supposed to live and and all of that and um unfortunately i think you know we've we've carried that to a, a degree in in a world of broadcasting and celebrity and and all of this um that's you know, that's very distracting from the truth. And the most heartbreaking piece of the Mars Hill story is people who came to faith there, saw Mark as a spiritual dad, and then when the church fell apart and he left, they lost their faith in the process. Mm. So, we have we have to um, – if there's anything I hope we can understand and, and repent of, it's that dynamic. Um, nice. So –
0: That's awesome. Mike Cosper, again, we didn't uh, Aubrey briefly mention a book Mike wrote a couple years ago, but we'd like to point you to that. It's called Recapturing the Wonder, Transcendent Faith in a Disenchanted World. You can also learn more about Mike at MikeDCosper.com and connect with him on Twitter at Mike Cosper, C-O-S-P-E-R. That's at Mike Cosper. And again, check out, we cannot encourage you enough to check out the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. You can find that wherever it is. You get your podcast. Mike, uh, Mike, we know you've got so much going on these days. Thanks so much for taking time and spending time with us today.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate
0: it. Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian From. We're so glad to have you on this Thursday afternoon. So we all know I would think who Rick Warren is, longtime sure. pastor, founder of Saddleback Church, author of the wildly popular Purpose Driven Life. He actually has a show on AM 1160. We feel like he's a friend a from friend afar. Fr- You've spent some time with Rick, Brian, so he's at least a friend of yours, nothing yes. else. Um someone else actually quoted something he said. So this is Matt Smethurst. Um quoting rick warren tweeting rick warren but i thought this was so interesting and i i wanted us to talk about it so here's the rick warren quote our culture has accepted two lies one if you disagree with someone's lifestyle you must fear or hate them and two to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do both are nonsense you don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Mm. So, um, Brian, break those down for me. What do you think about those?
0: Yeah. First of all, I don't think Rick Warren knows that he's my friend, but I like to count him <laughs> as one. Quote
1: unquote friend of <laughs>
0: Brian, Rick Warren. <laughs> 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 it's one of those stealth friendships because we spent one time together. Yes.
1: <laughs> he's my best friend. <laughs> Absolutely. Me and
0: Rick. It's a purpose driven relationship. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the first one there is, I think, what the church struggles with is, and I think the second one is our culture. I think there, this actually kind of defines it. I think too often in the church, it's, hey, if I disagree with somebody, they're now my enemy, right? Yes. Culture. Yes. It's, 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 especially culturally, like kind of the hot button culture issues, Mm -hmm. right? Like this isn't necessarily even like minor theological issues in the church, but it could be huge theological issues, right? This person's a Muslim and I'm a Christian or whatever else it might be. But also when it comes to cultural issues like LGBTQ stuff or uh, whatever, you know, politics, you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican, whatever else it might be. I think – uh, the church has this reputation because it's often true of people in the church that if I disagree with what you're doing, you are now my enemy. I have to speak against you. Yeah. I am, I'm kind of adversarial towards you. Yeah. The second one, I think is increasingly the way that our culture reacts to anything that hmm. if if you say that you love me, per Christian, right? You say that you love me, then you have to agree with everything that I say. You have to be, um, yeah. you know, quote unquote, tolerant of everything. And therefore, we get put into a bind when we say, well, I I don't agree with what you're saying, but I still love you. And then that person says, well, that's not very loving. You know, right. you can't love me right. and not agree with everything I say. And I think a lot of us within the church who want to love our neighbors, who want to be seen as compassionate, mm-hmm. who want to be for the community, I do think that becomes a real struggle because you see it in churches all around us that either you dig your heels in and you become known as fundamentalist and not right. loving. Right. Or you start uh you start kind of um fudging on some of your uh your beliefs and going ah well is it really that big a deal i want to be known as loving you know so therefore and rick warren saying no the answer is in the middle of these two that you don't need to compromise your convictions you can stand for something and still be loving with people who disagree with you now there is a caveat there uh that does not guarantee that they're going to accept that, <laughs> right? You yes,
1: that is you, such a good point, Brian.
0: Thanks. You can't control how other people react. But I do think as Christians, as Christ followers, our tact can't be I will only love those who agree with me, and I will mm-hmm. see as enemies the other. Mm-hmm. I think Rick Warren is onto a really important point here uh, that's really interesting. Can I
1: ask you another question? You're not a therapist, so this is maybe a little unfair that I'm like, I'm going to ask you a psychological question. But why do you think that our instinct is fear or hate? When we disagree with someone's lifestyle, like, and again, that's especially, I guess I'm asking that question of Christians. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that's our go-to mode of operation?
0: Mm, That's a great question. I think uh, the first thing that jumps to mind for me is uh, that that is often how we are also met. Right. Like, okay, mm. I don't believe X, you know, cult, whatever that issue is. Yeah. And we are met with, you're a this, you're intolerant, you're this. And what do you normally do? Uh, uh, what do you normally do? You, you normally push back when, when you're pushed against. Yeah. You kind of fight back. Sure. That's sure. That's not, I'll grant you people that's not what Jesus did. Yeah. <laughs> but right? that's a natural tendency. So yeah. that is one. And two, I think it, it becomes really hard not to look at certain tide, uh, tides or, or ways within our culture and not go, my goodness, we're losing our culture. What about our mm. kids? And you want to hold on tight and fight harder. I understand that. I feel that within me. And so I think that's where we get defensive. That's where we kind of start to push back. Uh, And, and, and I, I think that's where it comes from. Again, that's not the way of Jesus, but right. I would say – uh, that's probably where it comes from. Where, where where do you think it comes from? Yeah,
1: I, I mean, I, you know, it it feels like, I mean, the obvious answer is sin, right? But mm-hmm. there is something, I, I don't know what it is, if it's self-preservation, it, why we feel the need to go to fear just because someone is different, or why we feel the need to go to hate, like, I, and I, I mean, I say this about myself too, I wish my instinct was to go to like a kind curiosity, you know, like, yeah. oh. Oh, you're different than me. Oh, you, th- your lifestyle is different than mine. Oh, that's not my experience. Tell me more about that. Again, that doesn't mean I'm going to compromise what I believe to be, you know, God's standards for things. Um, but it, I wish that, uh, we sort of welcomed one another. And I say this about the world to Christians too. Like let's welcome one another with sort of a kind, compassionate curiosity and begin to build some bridges because ultimately we know this. Once you're in a relationship with mm-hmm. someone, like a true friendship, sitting across the dinner table with someone who disagrees with you. Now, you may disagree. There may be heated conflict. But it's so much more difficult to hate or be afraid of someone that you're sitting across the table with, right? That's right. Uh, you're sharing a meal together. They have a human body. You have a human body. They have pain. You have pain. And and your your common humanity sort of breaks I think that um, that boundary that that can happen so easily when you're online or when you don't actually know someone. And um, I also think we're so complicated, aren't we? Like, I think we we tend to want to villainize people, but no one is only one thing. So suddenly, you may disagree with someone's politics, right? If you're a, if you're a Republican, you may disagree with Democrats, and you may think they're villains or vice versa. But then you're sitting around having coffee with them, and you're like, "Oh wait, exactly." <laughs> I put them in this one box, but actually, we agree on this thing, or actually, we really care similarly about this thing, or so. Anyway, I, I, this is a good word for all of us. For Rick is. Warren, let's love people, we don't have to believe everything they do, we don't have to compromise our convictions, but we can greet one another with love. We thought that was an important conversation to have.
0: Coming up next, loving people can be hard and how do we love people when it's difficult to love them? We're going to have that conversation next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're joined by author and friend Karen Swallow-Prior. You're listening to The Common Good.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson here with my amazing co-host, Brian Fromm. I actually wanted to talk to you, Brian, about a tweet I saw uh, by Jackie Hill Perry. She's a preacher. She and her husband are actually spoken word poets. She's a really powerful ministry. If you don't know Jackie Hill Perry, um, she was actually part of the same-sex community but came to Christ and just really decided, right. listen, the God's my encounter with God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ is the most important thing to me. And so she is married to a man and is Uh, really making an intentional decision not to live a homosexual lifestyle and faithfully calling people to identity in Christ. So she got a really powerful, powerful testimony. Uh, But she tweeted something that I thought was really funny because it's about loving people when it's hard to love people. Here's what she said on Twitter. To be honest, I really don't like people. but Jesus told me that I'm supposed to love them. Pray for me because the
0: whole love thing is a struggle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I preach. love that because I thought it was so real, right? So Brian, what do you think about that?
0: We've all been there. Sometimes yeah. we're there often. Uh, you know, we often talk introvert, extrovert, extrovert. No, there. it doesn't matter what you are. There are times when loving individual people, but also loving all people is just really hard because yeah. uh, it could be what's going on around you in the world. It could just be what's going on in your own life. But sometimes people are hard. Like we're pastors and we will often say things as a, I will say something as a pastor often, like, man, being a pastor would be really easy if it weren't for people. <laughs> like
1: it, <laughs> right, right.
0: people are difficult and we're part of that, right? Like I can be difficult for other yes. people to love me, but yeah, sometimes Sometimes the call to love our spouses, our children, our parishioners, our neighbors, whatever else it might be. Sometimes it's really easy. It's not a chore to love them right now. And sometimes it's a choice. Like, I've got to love Jesus taught me. Uh, So I totally, totally resonate with what she said. I
1: know. I think a lot of people related to this. There's an author I follow who says something like, I love people, just not in person. And I'm like, yes, (laughs) I totally relate to that. That's good. Well, Jackie Hill Perry offers um, some solutions to how we can live empowered by God, even when we don't feel like it, related to loving people. So I wanted to play this little audio clip
2: for our listeners. There is no way that you have come in contact with the lavish grace of God and that you can then turn your back on Him. To me, that says you don't actually know Him. Mm. You, wow. <laughs> mm. To know Him and to know His love and to know His grace and to know His mercy means that I am desperate to actually please, please Him as best I can. Mm. And so I think what Jude is uh, attacking in his context is so much similar to what we're dealing with now.
3: What Jesus said to the lady in adultery, yeah. were your accusers. Yeah. Okay, so no one's accusing you anymore go and sin no more. Mm
2: -hmm. Grace doesn't just eliminate the the penalty of sin, Mm -hmm. right? Because she should have been Mm stoned. The law says that all sin deserves death. So what the Pharisees were saying was actually a right understanding of what her penalty should be. But when he says, go and sin no more, he not only removes the penalty, but he empowers her to actually not walk in the same way. Right? And so we see that grace removes penalty, and empowers you to do the impossible, which is to live holy.
1: Okay, so that's Jackie talking about how, listen, if you have come in contact with the lavish grace of God, that empowers us to do the impossible. Now, she's talking about living a holy life there, but I do think we can take that into this conversation about loving people, because ultimately, it's God's grace that empowers us to love. Okay, so here's my next question. I'm just going to keep putting you on the spot, Brian. I'm I'm Um, for it. If, okay, so think of that person in your life that's hard to love say their name out loud right now just kidding aubrey
0: (laughs) sampson you set Um, yourself up there
1: i did but i'm bump um what do you do or like if someone comes to you and they're like hey i'm really struggling with this family member they're toxic they're making me crazy how do i love them what advice do you give yourself or to the people you lead about this issue
0: yeah, let's start by being pastoral about this a little bit, being theological. Uh in our church right now we're going through the fr- uh through the book of Galatians. And I told you I'm not preaching, but Scott, our other pastor is preaching this week on the fruits of the spirit. Now, nice. love is a fruit of the spirit. It's right. the first one in the list. So what does that mean? Like ha- let's unpack that a little bit. It, the being that it's a fruit means that that's not something that ultimately I'm conjuring up, right? Mm-hmm. That I'm trying harder to do. Uh, What do we learn in Scripture that uh, that he is the vine, we are the branches, and that as I'm connected to the vine, uh, fruit is is the byproduct that comes like it's not about necessarily being more loving. That's Uh, it's about being connected to the vine. And so that's where the question becomes, like, how am I is my is my lack of ability to be loving? Is that actually a sign of what's going on in my relationship with Jesus? I think that's worth asking now, very practically. How do I love unlovable people? Yeah. Uh, I think we do need to remind people about boundaries. Mm, Like if somebody has hurt me, uh, the loving thing for me to do is not always, hey, don't worry about it. Let's go hang out like that. Sometimes we get forgiveness and love wrong in that way. Like, oh, it just means erasing everything. No, that's not what it means. Sometimes I can love somebody and still keep them out of my life. Right. But with that said, I think it's probably baby steps. Like what's a loving thing you can do for that person uh, as opposed to I love that person. They're probably not going to get there. Like what's a step I can take uh, that shows grace and shows love and. And and then maybe you know I I think it's kind of habit forming. The more we do, the more we do. It doesn't mean that everybody in your church you have to hang out with and be best friends with. Right. It doesn't mean that that neighbor that bothers you down the street you have to go and have a mo. Like there, there's that's not what love means. But. Uh, I do think we're called to reflect the love of Christ mm. into other people's lives. How would you answer that? I, you know, Pastor. I,
1: right, Pastor Sampson. I I think that's really a, a really good point you make. That love is not an emotion, right? Mm-hmm. Love, mm-hmm. as we know, has been displayed by Jesus Christ, who gave Himself up for us. And so, if we can remember that love is an action then we can pray that the Lord would give us his spirit to love in action, right? And give us creativity when it comes to like, okay, that one person that makes me crazy, God, how can I show them an act of love today? Not how can I love them and feel wonderful about them and think that they're amazing, but give me creativity to honor them in an act of love. And it might be like, you're ordering groceries for that person today. You're sending Mm -hmm. a note in the mail. You're writing an encouraging text. Like you can do loving things um, without always having to feel wonderful about it. And I do sometimes think that feeling of compassion follows, which is a beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit. That's right. And then, like you said, Brian, like, we just got to pray, right? Lord, Lord yes. I am frail. I am, I am sinful. I don't love the way you love. You know that about me. You love me anyway. And so That's help good. me to reflect your grace and your mercy to this person. and, and. Help me remember that you've loved me when I was ugly and a sinner and walking away from you. Help me to That's reflect right. that to other people. So I thought that was an important um, thing for us to talk about. Go ahead, yeah. Brian.
0: I just—I'll close it by saying I think of my own marriage sometimes. There you right? go. Like I love my wife, yeah. but I don't always feel loving. And sometimes the action precedes the feeling and the feeling follows. Other times the action is a result of the feeling, Mm -hmm. but you can't just be like, I don't feel it, so I'm going to be a jerk. (laughs) Right, right. That's not the way it works. And so sometimes it's, like you said, it's just a choice. Uh, to think a certain way and act a certain way, whether it be your spouse or that coworker that you just can't really stand. No, that's not, uh, that was not a passive I hope it thing, wasn't because right I'm
1: going to pretend like I didn't hear that, Brian. <laughs> or
0: just that neighbor or whatever else it might be. Well,
1: thanks for that. We thought that was a really important <laughs> conversation to have.
0: Coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Karen Swallow Pryor. She's author and research professor. Uh, we're going to talk to Karen about her last two um uh, columns that she wrote, her opinion columns, one dealing with systemic racism, the other dealing with social media. What we were just discussing, mm. Karen, is oh, whether you agree or disagree with Karen, she is always uh, a great listen and a great follow. And we're going to ask her what it's like to be an Internet meme. We're going to ask her that question. Can't wait. Coming, up, coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, Aim 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And Aubrey, uh, you and I have joked that there are some guests that we have who we feel like are legitimate friends now. They come on often when we ask and uh, are always enjoyable. And one of those people is a research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. That is Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, how are you doing today?
3: It's a hot. Humid day in in Virginia, but um, (laughs) otherwise, (laughs) I'm great. Good.
0: Good. Uh, Hey, before we jump in, as you said, you're from Virginia. Before we jump in, though, uh, for people who haven't heard you on before, could you just reintroduce yourself so they can get to know you a little bit?
3: Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I am a uh, research professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I teach primarily English classes and have done that for a couple of decades, um, at my, there and at my previous institution, Liberty University. And I write books and write mm-hmm. columns and I tweet Way too much. <laughs> <laughs> I was just telling Brian
1: earlier today that I'm I'm a little jealous of people who can tweet as prolifically as you do, because I feel like my brain just doesn't work in tweets and so I, I don't think you can ever tweet too much. You've done well. Good job, Karen. Thank you for that.
3: Um, well, in in my defense, can I? You yes. Know, yes. My, my area of specialty is 18th century British literature, <laughs> which is known for its very like succinct aphoristic oh, nice. language. That, oh, okay. So Alexander Pope would have loved Twitter. Oh, that's that, awesome.
2: That's my defense.
1: I love that so much. That is fantastic. Um, so Karen, you recently wrote an article that just has a fantastic title. Don't believe in systemic racism. Let's talk about the sexual revolution. Tell our listeners what in the world you're writing about
3: there. Wow. Yeah. So this, uh, article appeared in my newest column at Religion News Service um, and it has blown up a little bit and it's, it's funny because some people are just thinking it's really illuminating um, you know some people disagree with it but other people are like me and just saying this just seems so obvious mm. <laughs> and like and to me it just seemed Very obvious um, because, you know, but we all know that there's a lot of controversy around critical race theory and one of its um, core concepts, which is systemic racism, which is not, you know, that idea has been around for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically, it's the idea that racism isn't just an individual Attitude or belief—it's also something that becomes part of the culture, whether it's through the laws or through movies or songs or pop culture or just attitudes. And that it seems obvious to me that that kind of thing would exist. Um, and so, it really this idea occurred to me about a year ago, but it took me this long to write. Um, the sexual revolution that we, you know, we as Christians, especially conservative Christians, which is my community, you know, we decry this all the time. We see its effects everywhere, not just in the law, but in films and movies mm-hmm. and songs and ev- the mall. You can't even go to the mall without seeing something that would have shocked yeah. our grandparents. And so. Obviously, sex, sexual sin is an individual sin. We believe that as Christians, but it's also in the culture there. It's, it's part of it's become part of our culture. And so those two, I, I don't understand why the same people who who decry the sexual revolution mm. are so tend to be the same ones who are so resistant to the idea that that racism can kind of be part of the culture and we may not even be aware that we're mm. uh, perpetuating it.
0: Fascinating. And you bring up in the article, you say at one point, one need not embrace critical race theory. And then you say, I certainly don't. In order to recognize that systemic racism exists, it does feel like culturally, at least the people I talk to, we've linked critical race theory to rate. Uh, like if you acknowledge one, you acknowledge the other. But if you don't acknowledge one, then you reject the other and help people understand why how you can say mm-hmm. I reject critical race theory, or parts of it. Uh, while still believing this is an issue, because right now increasingly, I it feels like people aren't able to separate those two things. Mm-hmm.
3: That's a really good question, and I, and I cut about five hundred words out of this. column. <laughs> kind of got into the weeds there, and I thought this is just too much. I mean, critical race theory is an academic theory that has been around for decades. To me, it's a lot like a little bit earlier when postmodernism was in the air and Christians mm. were all denouncing postmodernism, They didn't know what it was. Yeah. They didn't know, you know, it was just sort of the boogeyman. And there are things about it that are to be rejected, but there are things about it that are correctives yeah. to what came before. Critical race theory is a lot like that. I'm not, it's not my area of expertise. I haven't studied it closely. I know it has some connections to Marxism and that, you know, that's something that I certainly, I mean, Personally, not just as a Christian, but as a human being, I I, I don't think Marxism is good. Um, but that's some you know people are just not. Um, it's just they're lumping them all together, mm-hmm. as you said, Brian. And systemic racism—the idea has become popularized because so much talk about critical race theory is in the air. But it really is a separate thing. This idea of you know, of, of something being in our systems and in our culture for so long that we don't even recognize it. Like It's like that, mm. you know, that old proverb about the, um, the goldfish swimming around in, in the bowl and one goes by and says, how's the water? And <laughs> yeah. the yeah, one goldfish says, what water? I mean, that's how culture works. We yeah. don't recognize what we're in. Um, We can, but it's just really hard and we have to talk about these things and Mm -hmm. and be humble in doing so and listen to the perspectives of others who maybe are outside the water or drowning in the water or Mm -hmm. have polluted water because, um, because all of our experiences aren't the same. Mm, That's good. Karen,
1: another thing that you do sort of subtly in this article is talk about how you learned years ago what abortion is, what it does to an unborn child and to the woman carrying the child. And a fire was lit in you, really a pro-life anti-abortion fire. And you make a connection between that and racism. Can you explain that to our listeners?
3: Yeah, I mean, that that is, again, a kind of a personal thing to me, because my strongest spiritual gift is prophecy. And not I don't mean telling the future, but just sort of telling the world what's right and what's wrong. Mm. Um, and so it actually doesn't feel like much of a choice to me. Um, when I first Became pro-life, which was an instantaneous thing. I just became passionate about it. I spoke out about it. I protested against it. I volunteered in a crisis pregnancy. I just, you know, it was, it just was something I had to do. And for me, speaking out against the racism that still exists in our culture is a similar thing. I just, I just see it and I don't feel like I have a choice in being silent about it. And so that's not, everyone isn't that way. Mm-hmm. I get that. Um, but the comparison I was trying to draw on that article is that it's sort of, it's my own conservative right-leaning Christian community that made me into this culture warrior through mm-hmm. the issue of abortion. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I mean, I'm, that is who I am. And it's, you know, and, and, that I don't want to change a thing, but but that's why I'm just as passionate about this issue because they all bear, you know, whether it's abortion or the, you know, the excesses and the abuses of the sexual revolution or racism. These mm-hmm. are assaults on on the dignity of human beings made in yeah. God's image, and I just yeah. I'm. I'm just passionate about those things.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. And Karen, with like the last minute we have, uh, we're really glad Karen's going to stay with us. We're going to talk about all sorts of other things with her. Uh, but all three of us uh, are in, you know, predominantly white churches. As you said, you kind of described your environment. What, what would you like to see the church right now, the evangelical, particularly white church, begin to do in the next year, would say, to, to kind of move this ball forward? And, and uh, well, yeah. What, what would you like to see happen within the church?
3: I mean, that's a big question. And I I think the first thing really is something that we just have to listen to Mm. other voices. We have to, again, recognize that we're in this water and not everyone's water is the same Mm. and and just be humble enough to hear what the experiences of others have been and to to. Understand that just because the people worship differently or dress differently or speak differently or behave, that that doesn't mean that their way is wrong and our way is right. Mm. Those are cultural things. and We just have to recognize that. And once we do, I mean, then then the things we do in our churches will follow.
0: That's right. That's right. Karen Swallow Pryor, again, is a research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. You can read uh, and catch up with Karen at karenswallowpryor.com, also on Twitter at KS Pryor. Uh, so glad to still have you with us. Speaking of podcasts, I did want to ask you, Aubrey and I have been kind of obsessed and talking about this uh, Christianity Today podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill because it it does so it captures so much within that. I know we asked you off air if you've been w- listening to it and you said you have. I would just love to know kind of your thoughts. What are we learning from it? What is what are you thinking as you're listening to this?
3: Wow. Well, I I am learning a lot simply because I really wasn't in those circles in those years that are being described and didn't watch this happen, although so many of my friends did and and I you know, it it is just such a convergence of so many unhealthy things that are being revealed about evangelicalism right now Um, a young immature person being placed in a position of power with no accountability that's Mm -hmm. that's certainly a thing that we need to avoid Um, a a sort of tapping you know tapping into a need in the world in worldly ways rather than biblical ways Um, you know uh, specifically i would say like the issue of, of masculinity and manhood which you know i think there are some some crisis points in our culture on, on those issues. But the church's response has to be biblical, not like a counter-cultural swing mm-hmm. um, just to be counter-cultural. Yeah. Um, and then just the other thing that is so interesting and really instructive is there were a lot of people who spoke up, a lot of people who were wounded, but there were a lot of people who had some power and influence who seemed to have been silent mm-hmm. and to have not done enough early enough to prevent some of this, um, this great, incredible damage that was done. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, Karen, I, this is maybe unfair because we're asking you just your opinion <laughs> about things, but uh, it feels like we're hearing more and more stories like that. Like people who actually were in power knew of some of the sin or some of the abuse in various Christian organizations, not just at Mars Hill. Why do you think that happens?
2: Yeah,
3: I mean, there are, or uh, there are the obvious wrong reasons why that happens, whether it's greed or pride or, you know, those, and, and certainly those things play a part in all of this. But I think also we have to, we have to, to really make changes. We have to be more understanding and see how, think, ask how good people with good intentions can become complicit in these kinds of things. And I think the, the biggest, Thing that I've seen, because I've been asking a lot of these questions among you know uh, people that I know, is that there's an it's easy to rationalize the good that's being done,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, yeah. and let the bad go on. That yeah. seems to be the prevailing thing. Like the gospel is being advanced, people's lives are being saved. It will hurt too many people to for this thing to come crashing down. Um, it's really ultimately a pragmatism mm. um, that is defines our modern culture, and unfortunately defines the church. And it is just it is simply not God's way. It's very human to do that, and it's very human to be afraid of what what might be lost if we speak up or we change it, but it is just simply wrong. We, somewhere along the way, we have gotten completely off track in not understanding that we just simply have to do things God's way, mm. regardless of what's
0: at stake. Oh, that's, uh, so you describe it as getting off track. What is, how do we get back on track? M- might be one or two things? Maybe there's, uh, you know, church leaders listening right now and they're wrestling with this. What, what would be some steps for us as the church to get back on track?
3: Well, I certainly think there are small steps that can be taken, even in big situations that are risky, that people are just not even willing to take that much risk. So I think there are lots of those kinds of things. And again, I'm being vague, but I'm speaking with very specific situations in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, But even beyond, I mean, that's a start. And I don't see people, even listening to podcasts like these, I know so many people who've just said that they don't want to listen because they don't want to know. And that's how these things continue. And then when we do know Take there, there are small things that can be done that entail some risk, but ultimately, you've how can we say we trust the Lord when we're not willing to do what needs to be done and put and trust Him for the outcome? Wow, wow. that's what people are not doing. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know how to tell people to do that except to just encourage them to do it. Yeah, yeah, wow, that's such a such an important word for us.
1: Okay, Karen, we want to ask you a fun question now. We'll take a turn here. So Brian and I were talking to you about, uh, before we went on air, we're seeing lots of people post pictures in a t-shirt with your face on it. And it um, <laughs> seems like the notorious KSP has almost become a meme in a really good way, a really fun <laughs> way. Talk to us about
3: that. What does that feel like? What is going on? Well, first of all, it's not my face. but <laughs> oh, okay. No, it, some somebody went to Target a few months ago when the spring collection came out and saw there's a there's a whole designer series of these T-shirts with different faces on them, and one of the faces they say looks like me. Now, I'll <laughs> take it. It looks like a younger, thinner version, of me,
2: but I'll I'll take it. You'll take it, yeah. Um,
3: and so so the person who saw that who's a fellow writer courtney ellis she just said you know could she asked my permission could we just because we were still in the pandemic you know this is the spring and she said could we just take a fun day and encourage everyone to go out and get these shirts and wear them Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i said yeah and i said you know it is a fun shirt i got one nice um But, and I said, well, let me use this event to focus attention not just on me, but on a ministry that I love. And sorry, guys, uh, you are second choice, but uh, I I used it. I just asked, I pointed people to Ecstasis Magazine, which is an art, really young, new. arts and literary uh, mm. magazine that cool. I just wanted to support and love. So I thought, well, let's turn it into some love for, for a great cause. And so it really was a lot of fun. And the t-shirts and pictures keep popping up. So, <laughs> um,
0: so and I guess you you wrote uh, n- another column a couple months ago about the social media examine life is not one that sustains us. I wonder, you probably didn't get into any of this to have a social media following, to have people you know reading you on Twitter and wearing t-shirts and this kind of stuff. So how do you wrestle with that? And how would you encourage other people who maybe don't have a big following to wrestle with kind of the social media life versus, you know, kind of real life?
3: Oh, goodness. I mean, one of the things I said in that article, and I really mean this, I am so thankful I was born and matured before the age of social media, Mm. because I can't imagine growing up in this environment um, and and having you know developing a sense of myself and identity and calling amidst all of these voices and these false visions, so that I you know I, I'm thankful that I was already established and old uh, before the rise yeah. of social media. <laughs> um, but we really have to understand that that even though real relationships can form there and so much good can happen, I would never deny that that it cannot replace the flesh and blood, brick and mortar, earth and sky existence of our daily lives with real people. Hmm. Um, And so I just shared a little bit about how, because I do have a, you know, a growing social media platform and a a writing career that kind of depends on that. But I just wanted to share people, this is not who I am. And this is not Mm. what I love and care about. I mean, I just love being in my house with my books and my dogs and my husband yeah. and nobody knowing about those things. My husband's very private. He <laughs> does not like the social media thing. And that's my real life. That's my real love. And the mm. other things are, are tools and they're fun and it's a gift. Um, but I don't want to build a life around that.
0: Absolutely. That's a good word from Karen Swallow Pryor, research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Go to karenswallowpryor.com. You can check out all her books, including On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Also follow her on Twitter, uh, as we just discussed, at K.S. Pryor. That's at K.S. Pryor. Karen, it is always so fun. Thanks for being so generous with your time. We look forward to talking to you again sometime soon.
3: Thank you, guys.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
1: everybody welcome back to the common good i'm aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host brian Fromm, and we're closing out the show today talking about the american church which is always a really good topic to talk about mm-hmm. speaking of the american church brian when did you start going to church did you grow up in church
0: I did. I grew up. De- I, there's no point in my life where I don't remember being a part of the church. And not ah, only I love that. Uh, we were always part of the same church growing up. So uh, from the, my earliest memory till I left for college, same church. My <gasps> best friend's dad was our pastor. No way. And yeah, yeah. Very formative. Like a youth pastor who I loved. Um, yeah. So I have no memory. We were actually that family who like if the church was open we were there you know what i mean like yes. it was yeah. always there my my earliest memory or my parents you know my dad on the elder board or my mom running this and this like very church was a huge huge part of our life how about you
1: i love that you know my my parents were both raised in church but they actually both walked away from god as young adults and oh, wow. yep yeah, and so i this will be i'll try to make the story short but some some kind of traumatic things happen in our family life. We had to move from uh, Atlanta, Georgia to Oklahoma when I was uh, just starting middle school. And my parents felt like that was God saying, it is time for you to come back. And so the first time I ever walked in the church was the first time I heard the gospel. And that was just before starting sixth grade. So wow. I, didn't, I didn't have the early sort of childlike years in church, but I definitely had formative years as a junior higher and a middle schooler. So, yeah, there, they're, I, I always like hearing stories of people who grew up in church and, right. you know, because I do think the church is uh, – as we're going to talk about right now, the church is – A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful bride. And the church is also a really, really messy place. In (laughs) fact, um, it's complex. (laughs) There we go. Tish Harrison Warren, who is an author. She's an Anglican priest. She's been on the show before. She wrote an article for Christianity Today called The American Church is a Mess, but I'm still hopeful. And she's talking about letters from Russell Moore describing the, again, the overt racism, the toleration of sexual abuse inside of the SBC. She's talking about some other leadership problems in Christian institutions, thirst for power, self defensiveness, you know, things like that. But somehow in the middle of it, she finds hope, which I think is really powerful. And here's what she says, because of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's presence in the church. So what do you think about that, Brian?
0: I think I wanted I thought it was good that we're ending the show with uh, writings from Tish Harrison Warren, because it's what a lot of us are feeling right now with the political season we came through. But also just COVID and people wrestling with, like, do I even want to go back to church? I had an elder meeting last night, and we were just talking about, like, what's going on, not just in our church, but just people in general, right? Like, Mm -hmm. as they come out of COVID. And so the church... Uh, kind of fundamentally, I think for a lot of people is kind of an open question right now. And, and so she does, she starts really dark in this about like all the problems, the deconstructing we see going on, the backbiting, the politics. And, and you kind of start to read this and you're like, Yeah, like where's the hope? And it's something you and I, we we make a habit of doing, especially when we have pastors on. We just ask them, like, are you hopeful Mm -hmm. uh, for the church? And I can't tell you how many people – I've yet to have anybody on our show say I'm not hopeful.
1: Yeah, that's Uh, so encouraging. They all say I'm
0: hopeful. But they often will say – I'm hopeful, but I'm not always optimistic. Yes. And you're like, okay. Yes. Uh, and she talks about, like, I love this paragraph. She says, I, I don't know that there's enough books and enough stress. She says it's easy to double down on strategy that we need better mm-hmm. programs or better discipleship. We need more magazines and schools and ministries and this and that. Uh, but she says each year the problems seem more complex and the darkness within our institution seems more distressing. And so she says this, but I believe in the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Because of this, I believe that God is far more invested in purifying and strengthen his, strengthening his church than I am. I therefore live in the full knowledge that I cannot predict the future. I can't even take a guess decline narratives be damned she says i my hope for the church is not that we're gonna figure out better methodology Mm -hmm. or that we're gonna figure out better programming those are important but she ultimately says her hope for the church lies in the Holy spirit. And the fact that it's, it's, it's God who says my church will not be defeated. And, and I think that's a really important way to end a really important to frame these conversations about the church, that it's not on our shoulders. We play a huge role, but it's not ultimately us who are going to either improve the church or destroy the church, right? Like that guy, it's the Holy spirit at work. Through this broken institution of people, that's where our hope needs to lie when we talk about the church.
1: Yeah, that's that's so good. And and I also think just this posture of, you know, there's so many people right now that are critical of the church in Christendom. Like we're being, I think, rightly critical of ourselves. But sometimes you can get lost in that and that can cause bitterness and that can cause cynicism. And to step back and go, wait, wait. <laughs> This isn't our deal. This is God's deal. And the Lord loves his church more than we could ever even imagine. And the Holy Spirit is at work in the church and beautiful things are happening and will continue to happen. And so I I do think sometimes it is it is just wise to step away from the screen, step away from the debate, step away from the madness and remember who the church is as yes. defined by God and Put our hope, of course, in Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, in the Father God, and trust like, hey, it will be okay. We will rise, you know? That's
0: right. Let let me read how she ends her article. She says... The fact is things are bad in the American church. I'm not optimistic they will get better, but I'm not pessimistic either. Mm. Jesus is risen from the dead. We need to truly understand and mourn the broken state of the American church. I'll keep having conversations with friends and fellow church leaders. Keep weeping over the state of the church. Keep working and see- seeking repentance and renewal. And I have great reason for hope. It's not a strategy a new book, a new political candidate, or a new initiative. The Holy Spirit is at work. That is enough for me for today. Amen. That's great perspective there from Tish Harrison Warren going, hey, no matter if things are just prospering or struggling, no matter if we're prospering or struggling as we look at the church, ultimately, uh, Jesus is on the throne. The Holy Spirit is at work. The church is God's method for reaching the world. And therefore, we can not only have hope, but it drives us to be invested in the church, even when sometimes it's frustrating and, and we are just kind of wringing our hands and going, what in the world is going on? We can trust in the Holy Spirit's work.
1: Oh, amen You're just preaching I kind of feel like I was at Brian Fromp's church This then That was good You're welcome Yeah <laughs> thanks for that No that's such a good perspective And such a good encouragement For all of us So thanks Thanks for that friend Tish Harrison Warren And thanks for that Encouraging word Brian Fromm. Well we are so grateful To you for joining us today On The Common Good We hope to see you back tomorrow From four to six For Brian from I'm Aubrey Sampson And you've been listening To The Common Good On AM 1160 Hope for your life